Well, good evening, everyone, and uh, it's, let me add my welcome to Dave's. It's great to have you with us tonight, and uh, thanks, Everly, for reading from God's Word. If you're visiting with us tonight, uh, we're midway through a series in Ephesians, and uh, uh, so, you know, you pick it up and you hear us in the middle of something, you're not sure what's gone on before and what's coming after, but hopefully uh, tonight uh, it will be, you'll get an idea where we're going. It's a bit of a tough passage, and so you might have questions. If you do have questions, please come and have a chat to me later. I'd love to be able to speak to you. Now, a little warning, um, had a cold this week. COVID-free, promise you, and, um, but nonetheless, my throat's still a little bit uh, dodgy, and so two cups of water, let's see how we go. If we can get through, let's ask God to help us together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for the privilege of uh, knowing you, and Father, thanks for the privilege of your word, that we can, as we read it, know who you are, what you're on about in this world, uh, who we are in relationship to you, and what it means to be a follower of yours. We pray, Lord God, that you give us the ability to concentrate now, given that there are so many possible distractions. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to hear you speak to us in your word tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, can I say, Lucy uh, would say that she loves Jesus, but she's not that interested in church. It might be all kinds of reasons. Maybe that's uh, something you felt at certain points in time. Uh, Linus would say well, he's okay with church, uh, but he's not that sold yet on why it's so important to serve in church. Why does it matter that much? Larissa loves church and she realises that serving is really important, but she does wonder why it is that when people do give of themselves and work really hard, why is it that if God is in it, why is it so hard? And why, do, why wouldn't you expect success and not suffering when you try to serve him? Yeah, they're good questions, aren't they? I'm indebted to another minister for those questions, but I've found them helpful as I've reflected on them this week, uh, looking at this passage in Ephesians. They're the kind of questions we might sometimes have, uh, depending on how far we are down the Christian path. And they're all questions that the Apostle Paul is answering in his letter here to the churches in and around Ephesus. Now, Paul has already thrown open the doors on God's purposes for all time and for all things. Uh, back in chapter 1 of Ephesians, uh, verse 10, Paul shows us exactly where all of history is heading. Uh, see there, God's purpose is, verse 10 of chapter 1, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that is in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. God's purpose for all time and eternity on earth and in heaven, is to unite everything under the rule of Jesus Christ. And we've seen how God's plan is already advancing. Uh, as those who believe in Jesus, we've already seen the great privilege of having our sins forgiven, of being adopted into God's family, of being sealed by God's Holy Spirit for our glorious inheritance which is to come. And we've seen also that the outcome of all that is unity. That is, God is making people one with him and one with each other, united in Jesus Christ as the church. But one of the, one of the questions we might have is how? How is God going to do all of this? Uh, our world doesn't really look like God is in control. Uh, the church doesn't appear very strong or even united at times. But at the end of his first prayer, Paul prays two prayers in the first half of, chapter of, of this letter. In chapter 1, verse 19, at the end of his first prayer, 
Paul prays that they might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then he goes on to show us what that power looks like. So in chapter 1, verse, verses 20 to 23, it's God's power that raised Jesus from the dead. In, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, it's God, God's power that raised believers who were once dead in their sins and facing God's judgment. And then in chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, we saw God's power reconciling communities. And so Jews and Gentiles, who were once hostile towards one another, were brought together as the church. Jesus had brought peace and reconciliation through his death, making one new household of God. And so the church is the powerful work of God. The church is the body of Christ. If you like, it's the one institution that is going to survive into all eternity. And so with that little brief cap where we've been over the last number of weeks in the first two chapters, we come to our passage today in chapter 3. Uh, and Paul begins one thought in verse 1 of chapter 3 before he kind of digresses to pick up on something else that's really important. Now, we, he'll pick up his thought in verse 1 again in verse 14, uh, which we'll come to next week. But let's just have a quick look, if we can, at verse 1, uh, at, at Paul, who he says is a prisoner for Christ. <clears throat> so see verse 1 there. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. That's, it's a great title, really. Uh, he's saying that I'm an ambassador, an ambassador of the risen and ruling Lord Jesus, sent by God himself. And so what a contrast to what we read here at the beginning of chapter 3. He's now a prisoner. Where's the power of God now in that? And notice Paul says he's also a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. See, Paul knows that some of the Ephesians may be discouraged by the fact that he's in jail. Notice his concern for them over in verse 13 of chapter 3. He says there, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, the great Paul, who brought the gospel to Ephesus and saw thousands saved and lives transformed, is now a prisoner in a Roman jail. But notice he doesn't actually see himself as a prisoner of Rome, but a prisoner of, or better for, a prisoner for Jesus Christ. Jesus, notice, is the one who has captured Paul, his heart, his mind, his will, and Paul, notice, isn't surprised by his suffering. Remember that Paul was one, the one who used to inflict the suffering on Christians, on the church. But Jesus saved Paul, Paul who was once known as Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who used to persecute the church. Paul, Jesus saved him and appointed him to share the good news with everyone. Uh, have a look at what Jesus says when he actually appoints Paul as his apostle back in chapter, Acts chapter 9. Uh, it should be up there on the screen. So chapter 9, verse 15. Uh, but the Lord said to him, that is Nicodemus, who goes to him, he says, Go, for he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, Paul may appear weak as he sits bound in a Roman jail, but God's power is at work even in Paul's imprisonment. Yeah, instead of despising the Gentiles like he once did, now he's suffering for them. 
so that they might actually know how much Jesus has done for them. See, that's God's power at work. Well, in verse 2, Paul changes tack. Uh, he goes on to explain something that is really important. He speaks, to, speaks of himself as a revealer of God's mystery. Now, before we get there, I want to give you just three scenarios, if I can quickly, about my life, of which only one is true. I want to tell you, I want you to tell me which one is true. I'm going to give you the three, then I'm going to ask you to put up your hand and tell me which one you think is true. Uh, okay, here's the three scenarios. I once went fishing with the NRL's top referee. Uh, secondly, I, I once went abseiling uh, down a 20-metre cliff in the Blue Mountains. Uh, or I once joined in a game of touch football with the St George players outside Cogra Jubilee Oval. Now I'm going to ask you which one of those is true. Uh, who thinks that uh, the, the first one is true, that I went fishing uh, with the NRL's top referee? Put your hand up if you think that's the one. Oh, yeah. yeah, six or seven of you there, very good. Um, I once, the reality is I once went fishing with the NRL's top referee, the guy that was actually in the picture up there. Yeah, put, who, who said that? You legends. There you go. Now, um, I've just exposed, if you like, one of the mysteries of Rod Cocking's former life. Um, you know, when, when I looked up the dictionary on this word mystery, which is used so often in Ephesians, I found quite a few definitions, but here's just a couple of them. So the first one, uh, an event or situation that is difficult to understand or explain. Or secondly, the quality of being strange, secret or puzzling. The word mystery um, is a key word in Ephesians, especially chapter 3. The question is, what does Paul actually mean when he uses the word? Is he talking about something that is difficult to understand or explain? Or is he talking about something strange or puzzling? Well, no, he's not speaking of either of those things. Because the way that Paul uses the word mystery is more like the way that I just used it then. I had information about myself that you didn't know and I revealed it to you. That is, I exposed something that up until now you didn't or couldn't know. And so the word that Paul uses here means a temporary secret, which once revealed is known and understood a secret no longer. Well, the other point to make about the way that uh, Paul uses the word here is that it relates to the divine. So in other words, it's a secret relating to God which, we always, which he always intended to reveal and be understood. So what is this secret? What is this mystery, as it's called here? Well, actually, we've already seen the word used back in chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, let me just read it for you again. So 1 verse 9, Paul says, God lavished his grace upon us, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. See, the mystery God has revealed to us is about Jesus. Specifically, that when the times reach their fulfilment, that is, the time that God has appointed, all things will be united under Christ. There will be one head over the whole universe, that's Jesus, and everyone and everything will be in subjection to him. Now, God has now told us that that is his plan, his purpose for the universe, so that we can know about it and make a response to it. But here in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul speaks about one specific aspect of this mystery. Have a look at it, have a look at it with me, verse 6 of chapter 3. He says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs 
members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The specific aspect of this mystery is about the Gentiles. As we've heard, Gentiles are everyone who is not Jews. Uh, that's the rest of the world. But here especially, it's about the Gentiles, about their inclusion as fellow heirs together with Israel of God's promises. So the mystery is not that Gentiles uh, were going to be included in God's family along with the Jews. That's not the big mystery. That was God's promise all along. We read about it just a moment ago in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, that God intended all nations to be included in his blessing. So that's not a mystery. The mystery is the way that it happens. So the Jews thought that you had to become a Jew to be welcomed into God's family. But what Paul is saying is that both, that is Jew and Gentile, in other words, everyone, are reconciled together as Christians, not Jews. The mystery is Jesus Christ. Gentiles were heirs together with Israel, sharers together in God's promises, not through Judaism, but through Jesus. You see, that's the dynamite, if you like, that they didn't see coming. Now, incidentally, do you recognise God's incredible wisdom here? God has come to a deeply divided society. And we saw last time the hostility between Jew and Gentile. And he's brought about a new unity, a new united people of God under the loving headship of Jesus. Of course, not, not all want to be a part of that community. And today, as with all of history, division is a massive stain on our society and our world. You know, we live in a deeply divided and hate-filled world, a world that largely rejects God. And with all of our attention to education and our marvellous intellects, what most comes to the fore is our great incompetence. You know, think about it. We have the most astonishing technology that gives us marvellous possibilities. But have a think about where our most sophisticated and ultimate technology is used in our weaponry. That which we spend the most money on is used to hate and kill and bring disunity. But God has a plan to overcome all of that. His plan was a mystery once hidden, but now has been revealed to us. A plan to bring peace and unity under Jesus Christ, that is, peace and unity with God and with each other. And Paul tells us that he has done that by enabling all people, both Jews, the chosen people of God, and Gentiles who were once alienated from God's promises, to come to God and to share in his promises in exactly the same way through Jesus Christ. Okay, so God's secret has been exposed, his mystery revealed. And one of the important issues in this passage is what we learn of the way that God reveals who he is and what his plans and purposes are for us. And it's a question that I've been asked on many occasions as someone hears the Bible read and explained but doesn't quite understand what the Bible's all about. And that question is, how do the Bible writers, how does Paul, the apostle, know the things he speaks about? Well, Paul himself gives an answer to this question right here. Uh, have a look from verse 2 and following of chapter 3. He says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive... How does Paul know 
God's plans and purposes? How did he find out the details of God's mystery? Well, he found out the same way you found out that I once went fishing with the NRL's top referee. I revealed it to you. And Paul says that God's mystery was revealed to him in verse 3. And in verse 2, he says that God graciously made him a steward of his mystery. In other words, God revealed to Paul as one of the apostles of Jesus Christ his mystery. And the reason he did that was so that Paul might be an ambassador, an administrator of God's mystery. God chose Paul along with the other apostles to implement the details of his mystery. It was his role appointed by God to get the secret out, to tell people, to explain God's purposes to all who are willing to listen. And it actually never ceased to amaze Paul that God had given him that task to reveal that mystery to us. So look at verse 7 there in chapter 3. He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which is given me by the power, working of his power. See, Paul was especially commissioned by God in verse 7. Uh, he says it was a gift of God's grace to him. And in verse 8 he goes on and says that even though I am the least of all the saints, the gift was given to him to preach, especially to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now that's a, a wonderful description of the unsearchable riches of Christ. I don't know if you've reflected on that at all. But the riches of Christ, they're boundless, he's saying. They're limitless. Jesus Christ is the one who never runs out of good things to give. Paul became a servant to this gospel, to this good news, to announce the momentous news of salvation and peace through Lord Jesus Christ. And notice here that he serves humbly and at great personal cost for the sake of others. There should be no pride in serving Christ and his people. To serve Christ, Paul says, is a gift and a privilege, not a burden, nor something to be proud of. You know, what, what, what would it look like to come to church each week to humbly and sacrificially serve others? You know, what would it look like to go to your growth group with humility and ready to serve the other members of your group? See, we don't have to be a critic from the sidelines. We can get involved, not because we deserve it, but simply because of God's grace towards us. See, it's amazing that God would choose Paul for such a task. I mean, remember, especially when we know that Paul used to be the most violent opponent of the church. He used to be a central figure, remember, in the hostility between Jew and Gentile. But by God's grace, he became part of the foundation upon which God continues to build his church. And how does that happen? Well, once again, notice, only by the power of God at work. See, Paul describes himself, notice, as less than the least of all the saints, of every Christian you can name, he counts himself as less than the least. No one is beyond Christ's redemption. I think that's the thing that we're supposed to see here. No one is beyond Christ's willingness to love and restore in relationship with him. No one is beyond God's power to use in his glorious service of the gospel. And so it's through the Apostle Paul that God's mystery is now revealed to us. You know, I wonder whether um, you've responded to Jesus' love for you. I wonder whether you even realised how much God loves you. You see, that's the heart of the message that we're hearing here, that Jesus loves you. Our access to God, our access to his purposes and plans, they were for a time unknown, a mystery. But 
but they come to us now through the word that Paul preached and the other apostles. You know, Paul has been appointed by God to speak to us, to reveal the unsearchable riches of Christ, to reveal how God has put an end to hostility between Jew and Gentile and to make one new people, to reveal God's new way of peace and unity through the church, the church which is supposed to be a multiracial community, the body of Christ. So you can't be a Bible-believing Christian and not believe in Paul. You can't be a Gentile believer and anti-Paul. He's our apostle. And so the way we know God and his plans is as we read what the Apostle Paul says in the Bible. You know, we can't understand God and his plans in any other way because this is the way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. Now, do you ever look out at our world and think, what on earth are we doing? What on earth is going on? You know, peace and unity are not words that you would use, I wouldn't have thought, regularly to describe our world. And to be honest, it's hard to imagine a solution to the dysfunctionality that characterises our world. People often, I think, refer to um, our world as a global village. You may have heard that uh, description. I think the hope is that by thinking of ourselves in that way, that we'll be more inclined to be united, uh, that we'll work together, uh, to feel a greater connection and bonding with our global neighbours. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> but given the hatred and discord that permeates our international relations, that would appear a completely forlorn hope. Australia is obviously not as bad as some, but we're still a good example of an increasingly dysfunctional human society. We may not be at war as such, but we do have a growing list of enemies without and within. We used to be a beacon of light for the success of multiculturalism, but we can be just as hate-filled as any other country. And it's not just out there, is it? For some of us, it's close to home. There's discord and jealousy and rivalry and hatred in the workplace. There's anger and bitterness between neighbours with fear often the result. It's also in the schoolyard. Young people can do despicable things to other young people at times. Some of the most hurtful things I've ever heard that have come out of a young person's mouth towards another young person. <coughs> Sadly, instead of teaching kids how to be good friends, how to treat others with respect and how to care for people, I've heard many parents teach their kids how to defend themselves, how to be able to fight and be aggressive so as not to be picked on. How sad it is when these are the values that we think we have to instill into our kids and there's no less conflict and pain and sadness in family life, is there? You know, we hurt one another. We take, we take revenge, we don't know how to disagree in love, we harbour grudges instead of forgiving. At every level, peace and unity are hard to come by. You know, I'm tempted to get more and more distressed by that, to be increasingly fearful for the society that uh, our children will grow up in. And can I tell you that if I wasn't a Christian, I probably would be distressed, because I think left to our own devices, there isn't a great deal of hope. But God gives us great hope. I hope you can see that in this passage. We have great hope. I mean, UN sanctions and peace treaties haven't worked. Government policies haven't worked. Campaigns for tolerance haven't worked. But God has made a way of peace and unity, first with himself and then with each other. How? 
He's done it through the cross of Jesus Christ that we saw in chapter 2 where Christ gave his life for ours. See, the question is, where do we see this peace and unity today? Well, Paul tells us right here in verse 10. I'm going to pick it up from verse 9 in chapter 3. And look what Paul says. Verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realised in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access, multifaceted wisdom. And it kind of sounds funny, doesn't it, really? Because we're just regular people trying to negotiate life. The church doesn't usually look that impressive. We're weak. We're flawed. But as the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places look on and see the church, they see that God is fulfilling his plans and purposes. In all of our weakness, they see that God's plans for peace and unity are assured. And it should be, and it should be seen at some level, even now in, 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 on the earthly realm, where we as people who are part of the church live in unity with one another even if that is somewhat flawed for the time being. But it will be finally seen throughout the entire cosmos when God brings his plans to fulfilment in Jesus Christ. And so when you reflect, do you see the importance of the church? The church is of eternal significance. It's not just a, a means to an end. It's actually an end in itself. So does your attitude to church reflect God's attitude to the church? There's kind of no room, is there, for a half-hearted attitude to church here, is there? God is creating one new people from every race and culture who are at peace with him and one another, all under the headship of Jesus Christ. See, in the church, the wisdom of God is revealed. In the church, the power of God is declared. So go to church to demonstrate to the universe the wisdom of God and the glory of Christ. See, because God alone is the one who is able to achieve peace and unity where all other human efforts have and will fail. How should we respond then to this incredible plan of God's? We'll just have a look at Paul here for a moment. Let him be your guide, I'd suggest. Verse 13, the last verse in our passage tonight, is the second of only two commands that Paul gives in the whole first half of his letter. See what verse 13 says? So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. You know, life is not good or easy for Paul, is it? Notice there. Paul's in prison because of his actions as a Christian, because of the things that he's written in this letter to the Ephesians. And in verse 13 here, he tells them not to lose heart over what he's suffering for them, because what he's suffering is actually for their glory. The gospel has come to them through the fact that he's had to suffer. I mean, things seem pretty bleak for Paul, but you might recall that things looked extremely bleak for the Lord Jesus Christ when he hung dying on a cross. And yet, all the unsearchable riches of Christ come to us because of his suffering. Not in spite of it, but because of his suffering. And so ministry is never a failure even if it ends with or includes suffering. Because God, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
will build his church. That's God's promise to us. Sometimes we're tempted to discouragement. Sometimes we're tempted to lose heart. I mean, the church doesn't always look that impressive. It's often mocked and ridiculed. But Paul wants us to see beyond the surface. Paul's confidence in God and his enthusiasm for Christ and the gospel aren't kind of dampened by any of his personal difficulties, he notice. In fact, they override his personal difficulties. And what about you? I mean, if you're a Christian, is that the way it is with you? Or is it sometimes the other way around, so that your personal difficulties override your confidence in God and your enthusiasm for Christ, for his people and for the gospel? I take it sometimes we struggle with this one. I know I do it to my own disappointment. But when you reflect on what is going on here, that Paul, once the enemy of God, Jesus saves him and he's suffering in jail so that message of the gospel could come not just to the Ephesians, but to you and I. So how then should we think about the gospel that God has given to us? Surely that's something that we should be concerned about how we get it out to others. See, Paul doesn't struggle like we struggle. Yes, he's in jail. I'm sure life is not happy in that space. And yet, the difficulties of his circumstance do not override his confidence in God and what he is doing in this world, and nor should it override ours. Well, let me suggest that we do, as we close, exactly what Paul does, bows in prayer before the Heavenly Father, who we now have access to in, by faith. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the unsearchable riches that come to us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for his love that overcomes all our fears, for his grace that covers our deepest regrets and sin, and for his promise to unite us with himself and with each other in true unity and peace through the church. Father, help us not to lose heart in Jesus. And please override our personal difficulties with a true confidence and joy in Christ, in his people, and in the good news of salvation. And we ask it in his name. Amen.